Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. In this episode, I sit down with Alan Argon, and he is one of the OGs in the sports nutrition space. Incredibly articulate, very well-read, very well-published, organized. If you want to know how to lose body fat, we got you covered. How to build muscle, also have you covered. How to optimize performance for a normal person, not just an athlete, and so much more. I really hope you enjoyed this episode with Alan as much as I did. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, comment, rate, share. This is a labor of love, and we want to know how you like it. Enjoy the show. I'd like to thank one of the sponsors of the show. And now I've been using Trident Coffee, if you follow me at all on Instagram, for a very long time. This is veteran-owned Trident Coffee. They have two tap rooms located in San Diego. They offer 14 different kinds of cold brew on tap, including dairy-free options. I absolutely love their lattes, their straight cold brew, all available in a can. You can go to tridentcoffee.com slash Dr. Lyon for, believe it or not, 20% off. I deeply, deeply encourage you to try this. They even have in their latte MCT oil. Really amazing. Um, I wish I could tell you my favorite flavor, but it just seems to switch every time I get a new one. Like most recently, lavender. Trident Coffee is also available at Sprouts, Central Market, and hundreds of other grocery store locations throughout the United States. In fact, I first found them at Bonnie's on on Coronado. And I will tell you, they also make keto donuts. Churro keto donuts are my favorite. So if you're listening and you want to send me some churro keto donuts, I would love it. Trident Coffee, that's spelled exactly how it sounds, tridentcoffee.com slash Dr. Lyon for 20% off. All right. So what you guys don't know is right before the podcast, I asked Alan if he wanted coffee. And boy, did he want coffee. I may or may not be saying he also wanted an extra shot in his coffee. But that made me think of one of the sponsors of the show and what product I wanted to talk about today. And that is actually something I use, and it's called Megawatt. It is, yes, it is a pre-workout, and yes, I use pre-workout. I think it is phenomenal. It has a nootropic in it. It has B vitamins. It helps me stay focused and alert, so I am not falling asleep talking to anyone. It has also electrolytes in it. You can get it at firstform.com slash Dr. Lion. It does have caffeine if you are sensitive to caffeine please check with your medical provider. I love this through training. I actually, quite frankly, love this in the afternoon when I have to perform mentally. Again, you can go to firstform.com slash Dr. Lyon and they offer free shipping US and also uh, if you are military, wherever you are, mostly. Give this a try. Let me know what you think many, many, many flavors like pink lemonade, blue raspberry. You won't be disappointed. Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show. And I am sitting here with the one and only Alan Argon. 
25 years of experience, my friend, really one of the OGs in the space. In fact, he was one of the original individuals that brought evidence-based practices and protocols to the health and wellness space, which is absolutely incredible. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Gabrielle. It's a real pleasure to be here. I know. This is so great. Um, thank you so much for coming down. Mm -hmm. For sure. For sure. We have lots to chat about. Um, and one of the reasons I really wanted you to come down and for me to be able to spend some time with you is that the quality of your work is really outstanding out of all the individuals in the space. When you put something out, I feel that it is very trustworthy and it's also consistently been that way. You know, so I'm not like, oh no, he was wrong on that. Or is that questionable? It's, it, you've really done a phenomenal job. Thank you. And the only way somebody does a job like that is because they have a really strong why. Mm -hmm. And I am curious is to why you do what you do. It's, I, I think it's just how I'm wired. Mm. Um, I, I don't know any other way to do it. And if I'm incorrect on something or if I'm a little off on something, then my audience will let me know. <laughs> like I mentioned, if, yeah. if I, if a figure is wrong or if a reference is wrong, uh, my audience is just as diligent as I am. And they'll mm. DM me in this say, Alan, I'm so sorry to bother you, but you know, this is in kilograms and not pounds. And I'm like, Oh goodness, you're right. Okay. Mm. Let's fix that. And I, so, so yeah, that, that's really the only way I yeah. know how to operate. And you're very meticulous. Yes. Yes. And you've always been this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. How did you get interested in the health and fitness space? Because you really, you know, it's, it's interesting. Two decades later, um, when people start, it's usually in the beginning, maybe you're kind of seen as an outlier, mm. uh, a little bit of a uh, rebel or crazy, or people are probably challenging your views. Mm. You know, when you started, why did you start? How did you start? You were yeah. definitely ahead mm. of your time. Yeah, I didn't necessarily uh, like come straight out the gate knowing exactly what I wanted to do with my life. Mm. Uh, you know, being perfectly candid, <laughs> I'm capable of all kinds of stuff. I yeah. mean, I I have artistic ability, musical ability, and so um, and I I love art. And, That's pretty um, amazing. Yeah, yeah, and I love entertainment, and and so. I originally thought that, hey, maybe I'll, I'll be a musician or, or I'll be some sort of an artist. I, I like to paint and draw and stuff. Um, but then life kind of does what it does. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got interested in just the idea of, of how, do the, how do the bodybuilders on the covers of magazines, how do they look like that? That's, that's really cool because um, when you're a kid, a lot of kids are interested in, in superheroes, comic book superheroes, mm. and, and you just kind of have those those images burned in your mind, and, and they really sort of stick with you. And then when you see people looking like that, I don't know, for somebody like myself who's just a bro. <laughs> um, uh, I don't think you're just a bro, but okay. It, it just totally interested me. And, and so I finally found a focus, 
that um i mean it's all the things that that i was interested in that that i could possibly dive into and uh, how old that, are you that's uh Oh boy. <laughs> you know, when, before oh, adolescence, just, just, <laughs> just yesterday. Yeah. 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 Before adolescence. Um, and it really inspired you. It, it really did inspire me, but I didn't really dive into it because I originally was going to get uh, a degree in graphic design hmm. because back in the, uh, the eighties, the, the, the career of personal training didn't really exist. Honestly, like it didn't exist until the late, 80s. That's wild. And in the early 90s, it was just beginning to be accepted as a career path. What were people doing? Was it a lot of cardio? Was it a, you know, <laughs> I mean, was it, I well, saw that bandana, the, the bandana and leg warmers, but oh gosh. You know, what were they? It was you know, the fitness, doing? fitness route career wise. It just didn't exist unless you wanted to own a gym. Okay. Um, or unless you wanted to be some sort of, uh, cardiac rehab type of uh, exercise physiology side mm. of things um, or even athletic training. So personal training and the fitness field really was born in the late 80s. And so uh, just in time for the birth of that, that career mm -hmm. path, I decided that, you know, I, I'm in this graphic design major because I have an interest in art, but it's not exactly what I want to do. Mm. And I just want to explore this fitness thing. I have a handful of friends who are doing personal training and they're enjoying it. And, uh, having grown up in LA, there was this whole thing back in the nineties that there was this glamorous idea that, you know, that the people who are really enjoying their lives, they're, they're personal trainers and they're personal trainers to the stars. Okay. And I thought to myself, personal trainers to the stars. That sounds really cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, the National Academy of Sports Medicine, mm -hmm. who at the time was headed by, um, the, the head trainer was Tom Purvis, uh, and he was partnered up with Mitch Simon. Um, they were beginning to sort of wake the industry up to a bit more of a, an objective approach, a little bit more analytic ap mm -hmm. uh, approach. And Neil Spruce was one of the guys behind it. He started Apex Fitness and now it's Got Fit and who knows what else Neil, wow. Neil's doing nowadays. So. I just got my personal training certifications and got really excited about everything and decided to change paths and go into nutrition as I did personal mm. training in the nineties. Got it. And so that's basically the start of everything. Yeah. And, and then of course, 10 years later, um, as we were discussing, um, did a nutrition you know, degree I, and I, then I yeah, got right. a graduate degree in nutritional sciences. I did my nutrition degrees. Uh, the, my master's degree in nutrition was kind of an afterthought. Mm. I thought I was just going to get a bachelor's degree in nutrition and just continue on with personal training. But then um, as my classmates filed off to internships and I sort of felt like, oh, you know, maybe maybe I'll do a, a little something extra. And I got the master's degree. And then I, it was during my master's degree that I discovered that, whoa, research and science and and stuff that's the, the stuff is cool yeah and it's and it's really important yeah and so from that point hopped online <laughs> started <laughs> discussing and debating and and seeing that there was this whole world of people in the fitness realm who had no idea what mm. science was what research was what the role of science and research had in the forward progression of our knowledge and ultimately our results and what we want to accomplish physique wise health-wise yeah. and everything else. And so it was just an incredible experience going from like 2003-ish 
all the way to 2013 and seeing the evidence-based fitness movement just kind of get born and, and then flourish mm. and be one of the guys at the head of the spear yeah. to try to push that forward. Yeah. So it was basically me, Lyle McDonald, Will Brink, uh, gosh, who else? Lane Norton a little bit further down the road. Yep. And then it just kind of went from there. And it's been like a couple of, gen <laughs> you know, another generation, yeah. a newer generation of yeah. folks who are like half my age, and <laughs> double my energy, just kind of taking the stuff that, that me and, and the old guard yeah. started and they're really keeping it going. Did you yeah. find that there was pushback? You know, it's interesting. So now you're presenting, uh, evidence-based protocols and we could agree that evidence-based I don't want to say evidence-based medicine. So we could say evidence-based fitness yeah. and wellness is really sure. a mix between what the science shows and then also boots on the ground. Mm -hmm. Would you, would you agree with that? Definitely. Okay. Definitely. And, and people get mad at the idea of evidence-based fitness. Uh, they get mad because a lot of the people in the evidence-based mm -hmm. camp are a little bit too focused on waving abstracts around from PubMed. They're a little bit too focused on arguing on the basis of who can post more links to studies, who yeah. can quote more conclusions from studies. And while that's important, it's also important to assess the uh, external validity or mm -hmm. the real world relevance of the methods in the study. Yeah. Like who, who was studied? What was the protocol? How relevant is it to the real world? Mm -hmm. And so there has to be a combination of what we know in in research and what's been published in the peer-reviewed journals right. but there's always going to be these broad swaths of gray area yeah. that we just not we haven't rooted it out yet mm -hmm. in the labs and i don't think we will ever root it out mm. and therefore true evidence-based practice is what's the weight of it, the evidence in the research literature which exactly what you said people i think really mm -hmm. are very rigid on that yeah. and that's mm -hmm. you know in clinical practice it you have to combine it with with field observations because mm -hmm. field observations are always going to fill in these knowledge gaps right and they'll never be fully filled in so true evidence-based practice is bridging the knowledge gaps in the literature with what we see with real people mm. in the field and so it's it's that convergence of those things that makes evidence-based practice yeah you know in your book you did a, a great job so your book is 10 chapters right yeah and two of those chapters are dedicated to research evidence-based practices mm -hmm. and just helping the consumer the lay public and i would say even non-lay public interface and understand how to choose a study trying yeah and mm -hmm. everybody wants to know i want to know selfishly you read a ton of literature yeah how many hours do you read a week you think? <laughs> oh boy i'm afraid to i'm a afraid lot. to just look at <laughs> which, which again makes the finest individuals the finest individuals in their space are the most well-read there is you know that's true yeah, well, yeah, life balance. I mean, <laughs> you got to work on that, but yeah. Which means Alan is not uh, having a uh, work-life balance, but reading a lot. <laughs> I'm working uh, on it, you know. It's, I, I totally can appreciate that. How do you vet information? Because there's a lot more information that's coming through now. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's tons of abstracts. There's tons of 
data and we've got more journals. We don't have to go to the card catalog anymore. Oh boy. Remember? remember? Absolutely. You yeah. know, you, you yeah. actually had to uh, call people on the phone and look it up. And now it, the information overload is incredible. Mm. Absolutely. When yes, you yes. are identifying, so you have a research review, which mm -hmm. by the way, I am, I read, I am a subscriber and there's articles. How do you, how do you vet that? What is your process? Do you have it's, a process? I'm sure um, you do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, it's kind of a holistic, um, kind of see the big picture and weigh it against the backdrop mm. type of thing. It's almost, <laughs> almost in, instantaneous. And, and, um, of course I, I tend to be biased towards the longer standing journals, um, like American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. Phenomenal. Uh, right. Gosh, there's some, some great review journal, nutrition reviews. Mm -hmm. um, there's the uh, Journal of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. Which you've, which you've published in, I believe, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. There's the, uh, um, the JSCR, and there's the uh, SCJ. There's, there's a bunch of really good stuff in the um, nutrition and exercise yeah. and sports nutrition um, areas. For sure. And... The, the ebb and flow of research as it comes down the pike is really interesting to have watched over the last few years when COVID hit. You just start seeing a lot of, and this was um, kind of an, a serendipitous thing that happened to be a good thing. It's like we have all of these studies mm -hmm. just being churned out, all pumped out. We have all kinds of data, but we haven't quite tried to make heads or tails of it. And so what COVID did was it made everybody have to stop their experiments yep. and just take a look at all the data that we have right now mm -hmm. and just try to review it and say, what are we learning here? What are we, what are we actually getting out of this mm -hmm. that we can put to practice? Um, what kind of big picture are we getting out of all the training studies on reps, sets, and rest intervals and stuff? What, what are we getting uh, out of all the nutritional studies, testing different doses of protein and carbohydrates and fat? And, and so, so yeah, it, it's been really cool to see a bunch of systematic reviews roll down the pike, uh, a bunch of narrative reviews roll down the pike, yeah. and even a bunch of just um, editorial and opinion pieces saying, you know, this is what we think we know in this area. So mm. to get back to your question after I just kind of went, oh, no, I no, it's great. I, the listener <sighs> definitely wants to know. They always want to know how the expert does it. Mm. And so helpful. Uh, you know, studies for my research review, I number one, if it interests me, if the topic is interesting, then my audience will be interested in it. Because my audience, um, in certain ways, are, are extensions of, of myself. Yeah. Um, but I just love anything having to do with diet as it relates to body composition. Um, either fat loss or muscle gain. You do gain. have that. There's an ISSN paper on body composition. Yes. With, and I think that that was one of the most read and cited studies. Is that, is, That's right. That's true. right. It's way up there. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. And, it, and, it and we'll link it. We'll link it so oh, people can. Of thank course. You. Yeah. I'm, I'm proud of I'm really proud of that. We wrote it in 2017. Mm. And um, that that's an interesting story because um, Jose Antonio, Joey, Joey Antonio, uh, the founder of ISSN, him and Doug Kalman founded the, um, the international society of sports nutrition. I did not know that. Okay. Yep. Yep. He asked me if I would be willing to write the mm. position stand on diets and body composition. And it's the very first one. Um, and these things get an update every 10 years. Right. So in five years, we're going to see <laughs> how we can improve that thing, how kind of reissue it and see what we've learned. 
but but yes so it's it's things like that it's research that impacts either fat loss muscle gain or both mm. uh as well as um athletic performance um and a smattering here and there of health and <laughs> and, and clinical stuff it's but, interesting though i i just want it, to it's really interesting in the fitness world it's it's like fat loss health and performance, mm-hmm. and then kind of over here, it's, it's health and wellness, but really it's all interconnected. It is for sure. But for it's sure. never the focus, um, yes. you know, body composition. And, and I would love to talk, you have a great book called flexible dieting, which my, uh, audience knows very well. And if you don't, you better, <laughs> we'll also put a link to that. Um, I am curious. I, I want to talk about body composition. And you led me right into it, so we're gonna we're gonna talk about cool. it. Let's do what it. for fat loss? What is number one? And I'll let you just kind of take it away. What are your current recommendations? You have really interesting stuff as it relates to the Allen Argon method of determining calories, sure. yeah, yeah. which is amazing. Which is, I mean, uh, this is you. people can learn from you. You've had a ton of experience, mm. and no matter how much someone reads, there's something very critical about the experience. Mm. Yes, yes, yes. Um, fat loss. Everybody wants to know how to lose weight. Yes. Fat loss, fundamentally, and, and of course, it's hard to kind of delve into the nuances. It is. It's hard to not delve into the nuances without complicating the whole thing. Okay, yep. so we'll start real big picture. Um, fat loss is generally a matter of uh, sustaining a caloric deficit. So um, burning more calories than you ingest mm-hmm. over essentially the course of the day or maybe more practically over the course of the week because every day is going to be kind of different some days might be surpluses net some days might be net deficits but as long as you don't know is alan was eating a large muffin when he was coming in here (laughs) (laughs) giving away giving away the secrets gluten-free don't worry it's (laughs) gluten-free this is a yeah this is a I'm busting his job. <laughs> Gluten-free water. For sure. um, yes, it's a matter of incurring a caloric deficit mm-hmm. by the end of the week, and that's the the trick for fat loss. Now, a little uh, wrinkle I want to throw in there: in certain populations who have just begun their their journey into training, mm-hmm. and if they've got excess body fat at the start of the journey. Right. Then there's a phenomenon called recomposition, which we nickname recomp, where fat loss and muscle gain can happen simultaneously and sometimes at the same rate mm. to the degree that your body weight can stay the same for a period of time while you're just basically swapping away fat mm. for an increase in muscle tissue. And this usually happens, like I said, in uh, novices and, and rank beginners with the excess body fat to give up people far from their potential for muscle gain. And, you know, <laughs> so this uh, is really uh, kind of a sedentary person yes. who is mm-hmm. untrained. Maybe they're walking, That's but right. they're still overweight and not doing any kind of resistance or any kind mm-hmm. of, uh, for practical purposes. Yes. Any kind of That's intensive right. training. People who just start, how much weight do you yeah. think someone could lose? I, that's mm. that's a difficult question, sure. right? Because sure. it depends on how overweight they are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the practice guidelines that we issue, just based on field observations and just based on what we see, is realistic. Fat loss, if you can set your goals to be one to two pounds a week, which is aggressive. Yeah, it can be very can aggra- be aggressive. Yeah. yeah, it's not easy. I mean, if you, geez, you know, imagine losing fifty to hundred pounds a year. That's what mm-hmm. we're. Kind what of if looking you only at. had? I don't know. 15 pounds to lose. 
Yeah, if you only had 15 pounds to lose, then you're kind of looking at the, the lower end of that range. Yeah. So the people who have a degree of you know overweight or obesity, then yeah, two pounds a week, you can gun for that. Right. But as you start getting towards normal weight and certainly towards leanness, that pound a week is really hmm. a challenge. But that, that is generally the range that we're looking at, one to two pounds a week. Hmm. And how do, how do you suggest people, because you do coach people. Mm -hmm. you still, do you still coach? Yeah, you do. do. You do. Yeah. you love that part? I, it, it's so challenging. Yeah. And um, that's why I've gotten really picky with, hmm. with who I work with yep. and who I can work with mm -hmm. and because of all the other projects. But, yeah, it's always going to keep me grounded. Yep. And it's something I'm always going to do. Otherwise, you kind of lose touch with the real world. When you are starting people with a goal of fat loss. Yes. You calculate their total calorie. Do you, yeah. Why don't you take me yeah, through this, their process? This is kind of the epic part, right? So there's a number crunching side of things, the, a theoretical hypothetical number crunching side of things. And then there's kind of the reality. Mm -hmm. So the reality is that if somebody wants to lose fat, they are going to have a target body weight or target body composition. Well, we'll call it the target body weight. That happens to be their goal body composition. Would that be a body fat percentage? Um, or it would, just... That would be baked on in there. Okay. Like, for example, if somebody was, let's say they were, let's just pick round numbers. If they were 200 pounds okay. and they wanted pounds. to be 150 pounds. Got it. Okay. Great. So their target body weight is 150. We mm -hmm. already kind of baked in the calculations of um, what their current body fat percent is and what their goal body fat percent is. And we determined that, um, okay, if they kept their lean body mass or whatever it was, mm -hmm. and then bam, their, their target body weight is, uh, is 150 Got it. And while it's currently 200. So we look at that target and we know that, well, that target is 50 pounds less yeah. than the current target. So we need to incur a caloric deficit in order to get there. So every body weight is going to have a, you know, a target body weight, current body weight. You're always going to design programs around what your physical activity level is going to be like, because physical activity level is a huge part of energy expenditure. Yes. So this whole recipe we're trying to cook up, we're trying to cook up, well, how much calories maintains this target mm. this target body weight like what is the what are the maintenance requirements of this theoretical 150 pound person that this 200 person 200 pound person right. is, is trying to reach right. what are the maintenance calories of that goal body weight mm. and at, at a given activity level so that's the process we project we say okay realistically okay this person can hit 150 and realistically they're going to be uh doing you know x hours on average of, of training per week. And then we also factor in non-exercise activity. And so you're talking about, um, you're building out, uh, what it would take for this 200 pound individual mm -hmm. to lose 50 pounds. Yep. And we are saying, we're figuring out their, what are the maintenance calories, needs maintenance of needs their future self? What are the maintenance of needs their, of their future, future self? self? I love yep. how you said that yep. and their activity, mm -hmm. which is, which is really unique to you. You kind of, baked in a very unique formula. Yes. There. There's training physical activity yep. and non-training physical activity. Right. And mm -hmm. we have to factor those both, both those things in because some people are going to work as, you know, servers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, some people are going to work or busy moms. as busy moms. Some people are going to have jobs where they're on their feet. Some people are going to have jobs where they're just literally just seated at a cubicle 
And what percentage does meat uh, play into this kind of equation? It, it really varies. It, varies. Um, it can be as low as like 10 to 15% of, of your energy mm. expenditure, all the way up to like 50-ish. Okay, so it really percent. depends. It, it's just a huge range, yes. Mm. So we factor in that target body weight, what your exercise mm -hmm. activity is going to be, and what your non-exercise activity is going to be. And then what we have is this theoretical amount of calories that you're supposed to take in that will maintain this um, target body weight. Now this is a lot of number crunching and it's a pain in the butt. So, um, I just, uh, my friend, David Galvin, shout out to David. Uh, he developed a calculator that just does the whole dang thing. And you just plug in, uh, you know, what's your neat level, how many hours on average per week do you train mm. and what's your target body weight. And there's steps to go over how to figure, even how to figure out your target body yeah. weight. Cool. And so yeah, that, there's, cool. A, there's a free online calculator. Yes, that I, I saw that. I, I may that. or may not have used it myself. Cool. Cool. <laughs> yeah, it's actually really. Your book is really helpful. So you then what happens? You build out a nutrition plan, and, and then, then also the right? training aspect. What about the the training aspect? Because that seems to be really variable. Training hours are what we kind of bake into that mm. that those target calories, and training hours are just like like. Training, training, not just so. This is this actually stuff. brings a really good point. Mm -hmm. Brings up a really good point. It's very subjective for people. Yeah. Have you noticed that when mm -hmm. they'll say, "Oh man, I, I just worked really hard," and you're thinking, "If you guys don't know, uh, Alan's very buff," and you might go, "Brother, you're not training hard." Wait a minute. Right? Do you guys? Okay, <laughs> I, it's just for your audience. <laughs> You guys realize how buff Gabrielle is? All oh, 115 she, pounds. She's covered up, but she's buff, all right? Just just trust me. <laughs> so how do you work in, uh, you know, those calculations of mm -hmm. uh, light exercise, moderate intensity, where, how do you kind of uh, interface that subjectivity? Yeah. Um, it, it's just an average, like, ballpark figure. Okay. And this is, uh, I have to emphasize the use of a calculator to find out what your target body weight is and what your theoretical maintenance needs are of this target body weight and just running through formulas, using mm -hmm. calculators, all of that stuff is mainly useful for people who don't know and just have really no clue of what their current maintenance needs are. Mm. So if you have a grip on what amount of calories maintains you right now, then... Do you know what your calorie maintenance is? It's right roughly 272800. That's pretty high. Pretty high. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you're the guy I, I that can eat the <laughs> annoying guy who can eat whatever they want. That's why you're eating the muffin when you came in. Yeah. Right. Um, so that's how effective... And then I want to get into like specifics in terms of how you prioritize macronutrients mm -hmm. for, for fat loss. Um, because again, we're talking about fat loss and also when people lose weight, it's not just only fat, right? It depends. Right. Yeah. And I think that people, we have this idea that we are going to go on a weight loss plan and we're just going to lose body fat and mm -hmm. it doesn't always happen that way. Yeah. So imagine that you do have a handle on mm -hmm. what your current caloric needs are and you don't need to bother with, um, you know, calculators. And everyone and should, formulas. shouldn't they? Because then you don't know. It, it's important to, and, yeah. and I also think it's important to have an idea of what your caloric needs are of your goal body weight. If it's significantly lower or significantly mm. higher than it is now, it's good to have those numbers floating around Yeah, because the alternative, um, and which is far too common for what, you know, 
practitioners do is that they just put somebody on if it's a woman put her on 1200 calories if it's a man put her on put him on 1500 mm -hmm. calories if the goal is weight loss right. and that's that's very haphazard mm -hmm. because at a certain point then the person encounters issues with plateaus and compliance and you know um it's a lot more haphazard way to go about it mm. so if somebody has a goal of weight loss or fat loss, fat loss yeah and they happen to know what maintains them right now in their current overweight or obese state mm. then i would recommend just making sure that that protein is sound mm -hmm. but when you say protein sound mm -hmm. What do you recommend? I already know what you recommend, but yeah. the listener. Uh, yeah, a, a very simple benchmark would be around a gram per pound of target body weight. Mm -hmm. And that's especially important as you're reducing mm -hmm. calories because you want to maintain that lean tissue. Right, right. And, and some people don't make the distinction of, you know, target body weight versus current body mm -hmm. weight. So if somebody is like 250 pounds right now and let's say they have obese, um, you may be over prescribing protein mm -hmm. if you work on current body weight. So you always want to operate on target body weight. So right around a gram per pound of target body weight. And for those who are afraid of protein, then you can go <laughs> as low as uh, 0.7 grams per pound of target body, body weight. weight. Yeah. So that the protein range would be 0.7 to 1.0 grams of protein per pound of target body weight. Mm -hmm. And so you keep protein sound. And then you impose a caloric deficit. And so caloric deficits, the, uh, the degree of aggressiveness really depends on how much body fat that you have to lose. Mm. So somebody with a lot of body fat to lose can choose to set a, an aggressive deficit as high as like 20 to 30% mm. um, down from what currently maintains them. 20 to 30%. 20 to 30%. Okay, yeah. so that uh, is on, aggressive. Yeah, on the high end, yeah. Yeah. Um, the kind of the general safe range would be 10 to 20 percent and it's interesting how the 10 to 20 uh, range applies to so many things in, in nutrition it does so many it does. things it and, does and so i i'll take the liberty to kind of yes. shoehorn that love it <laughs> that uh that guideline in, into setting a deficit and even setting a surplus when we're talking about um, muscle gain but okay so 10 to 20 percent um off of what currently maintains you mm. and you would go 20 percent if you want to if you have more body body weight, body fat to lose, and then you'd go ten percent if you're just trying to kind of lose the, the, the last right. little bit. Because the leaner you are, then the more careful you have to be with setting a caloric deficit. Because then your lean mask is more at, li at risk right. for for you getting rid of it. Yeah. Do you find that, or have you found when working with people that there's almost like a stress response that the deficit that that hunger um, I don't know whether it increases cortisol for them or again, this may be a nebulous question, but do you ever find that the, it just really increases that individual stress and they're able to execute, but it's perhaps maybe they're holding more water or it's not uh, the way in which you had anticipated. Yeah. Everybody is so different mm. in how they handle, um, caloric deficit assignments. Uh, some people are just like robots and like machines and they just go for it. And, and some people have stronger emotional attachments to food. And also um, amidst all of this, people have different perceptions and degrees of accuracy and uh, what, what they think is a certain amount of food or a certain calorie level. It's really important yeah. to track. If you don't right. know, individuals should, should track um, mm -hmm. 
I have tracked for a very long time. My patients, you better be tracking, should track for a long time. Um, interesting. Yeah, people, people highly different from that. And it usually is a stressful thing hmm. for people to um, try to sustain a caloric deficit. Mm. And so that's why it can become important to, you know, non-linearize the process with diet breaks or with just, um, examining the, the goal for the person and looking at their, their dieting week. Some people are okay with daily caloric restriction while others work better on a more non-linear type of model where some days they don't feel like they're dieting at all. Mm. And so, yeah, there's different, different ways to set that up and it all has to be individualized to the, the person's goal and their preferences. Yeah. I think that's really helpful for people to hear. Yeah. What is the next macronutrient after you've identified that their protein is going to be 0.7 mm -hmm. to one gram per pound of yeah. ideal body weight or, or set point body weight. And I know your protein hierarchy where your, your goal really is within that 24 hour period. Yeah. Um, it's important to have your nutrition dialed in, obviously. It's also important to have your insides dialed in, which is why I've partnered with insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. The reason is, is because you can do everything right on the outside, but the only way you actually know if you're doing everything right on the outside is if you examine what's on the inside. You can go to insighttracker.com slash Dr. Lion for 20% off their entire store. If you want to know what your vitamin D levels are, if you want to know what your insulin is, your fasting blood glucose, then this is the place to go and you can adjust accordingly. It will even analyze your DNA and quite possibly you'll learn your true biological age. You could add inner age 2.0 to any plan. For a limited time only, get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. What is the next, ne the next macronutrient? Either carb or fat, really. Um, and it depends on how athletic and performance oriented the person's goal is mm -hmm. that, that determines what the next macronutrient we look at is. So um, competitively athletic folks need a certain minimum of carbohydrate in order to operate at a high level competitively. Yeah. Uh, whereas if you're looking at the, and what level would you, would you recommend? I know the ISSN sure, has sure. put out some position statements on that. What is your recommendation for, um, and we're not talking about weekend warriors. Mm -hmm. We're talking mm -hmm. about athletic performance. Yeah. Observationally. And this is something that hasn't been rooted out systematically where we have these hard mm -hmm. thresholds and stuff, but just observationally across the range of competitive sports, whether it be from the strength oriented stuff all the way to the endurance oriented stuff. The low end appears to be like three-ish grams per kilogram of body weight, which Three, is like yeah. one, one and a half, mm -hmm. one point seven, something like that, uh, grams per pound of body weight for carbs. And interesting, that's quite a bit more than keto. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or a low-carb diet. So it's three grams um, at the minimum per Three kilogram. grams per kilogram body, body weight. weight. So in pounds, you know, you're looking at about like half-ish yep. that. Um, okay. Yes. Yes. So and that's so kind that's, of the minimum for right for athletic pursuits. I, I found mm -hmm. that to be true. Um, yeah. personally, I mean, they should have a sport where it's speed diaper changing. <laughs> <laughs> I would you, be, I would be the Olympics. I know. Kill you it. Kill it. The speed diaper changing. The, um, three grams per kilogram per body weight is at the minimum for athletic. That, that would be the minimum for both athletic, athletic performance, as well as muscle hypertrophy. You know, we, 
while we're on the three. Yeah, the three. let's do it. So three grams per kilogram. Mm -hmm. That would be sort of the minimum for hypertrophy. Uh, and and this then do you is, care uh, how you break that down in terms of pre post-workout glycogen mm -hmm. repletion? I, I know that mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of discussion in the space, whether it's a 24-hour yeah. event, not a 24-hour event, but a 24-hour uh, intake versus mm -hmm. post-sports performance. So yeah, awesome that, that would mainly matter if we're looking at endurance competition. Mm -hmm. So endurance competition is this whole thing unto itself all the way like right here. <laughs> Those crazy people that are running 100 miles now. Yes, okay. yes. So, I, right. And interesting, there, there's a faction of folks who uh, would argue that, well, the, the current carbohydrate um, recommendations are, are uh, uh, unsupportably high Which for, are for endurance stuff. Okay, yeah. But, but yeah, that, that bottom end, that three grams per kilogram cutoff, mm -hmm. That mainly applies to hypertrophy and strength goals uh, all the way up to like the, the bottom end for endurance recommendations for high volume endurance sports is actually six grams per kilogram of body weight. And how would you define um, endurance sports? So if the listener mm -hmm. was like, well, mm -hmm. I'm running a marathon, does that mean that I need to double my carbohydrate intake? Basically, yeah. They do? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So six grams per kilogram for, for high volume yep. endurance stuff, and for anything from just strength sports to mixed sports, mixed mm -hmm. and team sports, it's like three to six ish grams, and, and some would say three to eight. Mm -hmm. But once you start getting into like above six, you're really looking at high volume endurance. That's a lot. Type of uh, yeah, competitive endurance events. Yeah. And when someone is trying to lose fat. Would you say that they should focus on either losing fat or performance and not the, the mix between the two? Yes, yes. And, and it depends on the, the individual and the situation. But like, if you don't have specific athletic performance goals, mm -hmm. if you're just a, a regular person living life and, and, and maybe you have recreational uh, performance goals for right. your weekend warrior game with, with your Or even if they're training, what, every day? I mean, I work out every day, but mm -hmm. I don't. I just have body composition goals. I don't, I don't really care about my performance. Right. Right. In that case, if you don't have significant hypertrophy goals mm -hmm. where your prime goal is, I want to put on some meat, some mass. <laughs> yeah. Negative then then yeah. seriously, uh, go with your personal preference in terms of carbohydrate intake. Um, practically speaking, it's kind of impossible to go zero carb. I mean, you can, you can, but that's not sustainable. You I mean, can. The data doesn't support how sustainable that is. Right. I mean, there's nothing against, I've, I, I think that you and I can agree upon. We don't care if someone goes no carb or, or not, but yeah. in terms of sustainability, sustainability, really and practicality and, and it's yeah. But like if, if you don't have competitive athletic goals, mm -hmm. then it, it really doesn't, it, it really doesn't matter how low carb you want to go or how high carb you want to go. As long as your protein is in that right zone, then you can, Gosh, you can vacillate through the week. You can go ketoing three days a week and then like yeah. non-ketoing non the other four if you want. If you want to mix it up, um, you can go like Pritikin. <laughs> yeah, Pritikin. That's an old one. Yes, you know? for sure. So, so yeah, um, for people who don't have those competitive goals. And just really want to lose body part. fat, you would recommend... It doesn't matter. That carbon matter. fat doesn't freaking matter. You want to go keto, want to go deep keto... Great, fine. You know, do you with that? But the person who's going non-keto is going to lose as much fat as you will, as long as that person is sticking to their they're, plan and their overall caloric targets. And yeah. realistically, it would be very difficult on a calorie deficit 
depending, obviously, to go high carb, right? Depending, I mean, I'm sure there's high carb. Yeah, usually there's numbers all across the board. But if someone's on a 1500 calorie diet, and then they need to meet their protein intake, probably not going to be a really not going to have a lot of carbs to work with anyway. Exactly. Exactly. And do you have any preference on carbohydrate timing? If someone is trying to lose weight? Mm -hmm. My preference on carbohydrate timing outside of athleticals is whenever you want to eat your carbs, period, done. As long as they're within... As long as as you you hit the target by the end of the day. So is this where the concept of flexible dieting came up, like came out, you know? (laughs) We we didn't even talk about that yet. (laughs) But I mean, I'm sure these concepts are all, I know because I've read it, these Mm -hmm. are all concepts within the book. Right, right. They're part of it. And there's a whole conversation about the the anabolic window and and carb timing for growth and performance and stuff like that. I mean, uh, there's a whole area of uh, carb timing that, applies to endurance performance. Uh, there, and there's a whole area of post-exercise carb timing that applies to endurance events that have multiple glycogen depleting events within a single day. But if we're just and looking at... And what would that at, be for the, for the listener to understand? Like a multiple glycogen depleting event? Yeah, if, if we're talking about like triathlon situations mm-hmm. or we're talking about like you, you just ended um, um, a swim and then you're going to get on get on a bike, you know, with it. Uh, what about anytime, CrossFit? Mm. Okay, CrossFit is one of those mixed sports mm-hmm. that has a lower carbohydrate requirement mm-hmm. than just hardcore ultra endurance stuff. And CrossFit, observationally, does best with hypertrophy type carb intakes. And so you're looking at anywhere from the three grams per kilogram amount all the way up to like six ish. Mm-hmm seven, some would say eight, but it's definitely in that mid zone mm. for carbohydrate intake for CrossFit. Cause it, it really is kind of a mix of, uh, yeah, energy for sure. systems. And stuff. I've been yeah. really into that these days. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But for, for fat loss, um, eat your carbs whenever the heck you want. There's some really interesting, um, arguments going on with, with carb timing with yeah. respect to fat loss and stuff. But ultimately when you look at the body of evidence, it just doesn't freaking matter enough mm. when you eat your carbs in the day, whether you front load your carbs in the day, whether you back load your carbs in the day. Um, there's research supporting like the, these little nuances in both directions. Um, there's the whole intermittent fasting uh, thing where there's different models within that where people are pushing, uh, don't eat carbs after 6 p.m. or, oh, right. we got to wait till you eat carbs. And none of that freaking matters right none of that none of it matters and you you eat the carbs when you want to eat the carbs mm. and you structure your diet in such a way that you can actually adhere to it in the long term because ultimately at in the end what matters for fat loss is that you are sustaining this net caloric deficit by mm. the end of each week and you're stringing a bunch of weeks together it doesn't matter whether you had your carbs pre-exercise during exercise post-exercise in the morning or in the evening None of that crap matters, of course, unless we're talking about athletic performance. Right. And also, I, I think that knowing the individual's body response, for example, some people can have a little bit of carbs and then they're craving carbs mm-hmm. the whole day. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Right. It mm-hmm. really just depends on the person. For example, I tend to eat carbs later on the day in the day because I just prefer it that way. Mm-hmm. If I have some bigger carbohydrate meal first thing, I'm looking for, I don't know, who knows, oatmeal or whatever I'm looking for. So, you know, I, I think that knowing oneself is really beneficial. Mm -hmm. Um, 
got to individualize it. Yes. Yes. And I'm just curious in terms of meal threshold, do you ever think about carbohydrates in terms of meal thresholds? For example, I mean, this is typically what I do in my practice, you know, depending on, um, if the individual has a lot of weight to lose, they do seem to really be carbohydrate addicted. I try to minimize any kind of insulin response. So I keep carbohydrates 40 grams or less per meal. Okay. Um, have, do you ever do any kind of meal? Per meal thresholds. Yeah. I, I haven't personally mm. had that focus. Um, however, I do notice that some individuals would rather concentrate their carbs into a single meal Mm -hmm. versus spreading them out through each of the meals. Mm -hmm. And in my personal observations, um, those individuals vary. Like Mm -hmm. some people will do great with an evenly spread distribution of carbs through the day. And some will do great with just their carb bomb at dinner. Yeah. So I think that that too varies. And do you care what kind of carbohydrate they have? Do you care in general? Do people, does it have to be vegetables or fruits? Do you have a preference? I have a preference for, uh, for carbohydrate. And once again, this is like general population, um, body composition goals, which everybody wants body composition. Goals. Sure. Yes. You know, yes. Um, I prefer that people go as whole and minimally refined as possible, mm. uh, within reason. And even that is kind of a nitpick. Um, with people who have sort of low, low targets with carbohydrate in the day, like for example, if they're shooting for, um, some target of carbohydrate grams that are like hundred grams or less, you know, a few fruits and then you're already almost there, you know? Yeah. And, And so, um, but I would rather have people do the few fruits than just let's say something straight, like chug down a Coke or something. Right. Or no, a, a you're not Cokes, doing that. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, um, but here, here's the interesting thing. As much as I theoretically think that everybody should go with these, uh, wholesome carb sources, mm-hmm. like just try to keep it either whole fruit or potatoes or peas, beans, corn, yam squash, mm-hmm. uh, and then the, the fibrous vegetables rounding out the, you know, the rest of it. Well, when you look at the, the longest living, um, countries Mm. in the world half the carb sources is coming from like rice or noodles Mm -hmm. which are basically refined (laughs) right carbs (laughs) and it's like okay well there's room for that stuff Mm. at least theoretically and also they're getting a a lot of the other stuff right too they're consuming seafood and they're consuming a a bunch of other a bunch of Mm. plant stuff and then they've got these other um factors that contribute uh, non-diet factors that contribute to to good health so that it's confounded by those things as well. Who knows? Maybe, maybe those countries, those folks will live to like 150 if they only like, they better have some good skincare. (laughs) If they only got their carb sources, right. And not eat so much rice and noodles. Right. So, um, so yeah, I, I always, uh, think it's a safe bet to push for whole and minimally refined sources of carbohydrate rather than the refined stuff. But, with respect to the refined stuff, it all falls under a category of foods called discretionary calories or just the, the YOLO margin, mm-hmm. which what, I think, the, what is that? <laughs> YOLO. The, is, you, that, you, is, that, is that a bro? Is that a bro statement? It's a bro what's thing. It, yeah. Yeah. That? Yeah. It's a, you only live once margin. So, um, it's the 10 to 20% of your calories that are from kind of anything. Mm. 
anything goes, whether it's uh, cook, uh, cookies, uh, cake, fried foods, uh, deep fried foods, alcohol, all that stuff. Mm. Um, crap, <laughs> junk. <laughs> we don't need that. We don't need that. What about fat? How do you, and you know, I, I, I don't want to miss the opportunity to talk to you about hypertrophy. Sure. Um, cause you have published quite a bit on that. Um, so I do have questions. I want to make sure that we touch on fat, your mm-hmm. perspective of fat, also your perspective of seed oils. If you want to mention yeah. that, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, and I mean, there's so much to ask uh-huh. you artificial uh-huh. sweeteners, but uh-huh. I do want to stick to fat. And then I, I definitely want to touch on hypertrophy and okay. of course, training the training aspect. Everyone wants to know all about that. Cool. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's yeah, do yeah. It. Let's okay. Go. So in terms of hypertrophy, so we talked about fat loss. Mm-hmm. Now we moved to hypertrophy. You mentioned that they figure out their baseline caloric maintenance. Mm-hmm. Do they, if they're looking for hypertrophy, let's say for example, someone is 200 pounds. We'll take that 200 pound person and they want to have hyper, they want to go through a hypertrophy phase, but their goal weight is i don't know 170 pounds okay mm-hmm. Is, mm-hmm. would that be something that mm-hmm. someone how would they go ahead and calculate that how do you have people target hypertrophy just in general and calculations and macros yeah. if somebody is over a certain threshold i mean if somebody is on the higher end of over overweight or obese mm. um then it is possible for certain individuals to have hypertrophy goals or muscle gain goals within there. Mm. But I think generally you, you need to pick a focus. You need to zero in on a goal. Um, if your goal is to just get started and just get into better shape, then you have to look at your hypertrophy at that point, at that starting point as kind of a default of the program. Mm. Because if your primary goal was muscle hypertrophy, then you would have to put the focus on that. You know, um, it's just kind of, kind of the, it works a lot better if you can mm-hmm. zero in on a single goal. Now, if somebody, let, let's say they're obese, they're straight off the couch yep. and they just like, oh man, I have a lot of body fat and I have no muscle. Let's, let's kind of yes. get this thing rolling. Yes. Then they would have to accept the fact that, okay, well, recomp is possible. I'm just going to comply with the program. And I will gain a certain amount of muscle, mm-hmm. but I won't necessarily be gaining muscle at the maximal rate. And I just kind of have to accept that. So yeah, you, you touched upon uh, um, a population who it's sort of hard to right. kind of manipulate and, yes. and, and, and sort of uh, um, um, focus on what exactly they want to accomplish because they will be recomping. Mm-hmm. But now if we finally get them to intermediate status. Yeah. And, what about an intermediate individual? And yeah. how would you do, define a intermediate, an intermediately trained person who sure. now wants to build muscle? Sure. Okay. So, um, somebody who's intermediate in terms of, uh, let's say body composition and training, um, uh, intermediate they're they're not obese. Um, they could be on s- sort of like the lower end of like over overweight or crossing over into normal weight. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've been training, consistently for at least a year and then uh, then you can if it's been consistent mm. then you can kind of call this person okay well you've been training a bit you're you're not a rank newbie right and i hesitate to put timelines on stuff hard timelines i've, I've talked to to brad about this um, brad schoenfeld mm-hmm. he's like you know you can work with certain people and you work with them for for just a few months and they're at a more advanced training mm. status than somebody who's been training for a full year. So it's really kind of a, an individual thing. 
where some people just gain strength and adeptness. Mm. At, Why at do you think it's just genetic? Unfortunately, yeah, it's it's the injustice of biology. Gosh. Yeah, yeah, I've seen those people. They yeah. look at a weight and they just and they just jacked. Absolutely, they yes. haven't trained. I mean, maybe they were really well trained, and then they perhaps haven't trained for a long time, and then they just go and pick up a weight, and it's just not even fair. I, I looked up Phil Heath's competitive history, <laughs> and that dude, I think he won the nationals within two years of like just serious, consistent bodybuilding. Mm. He freaking won, won the national. Amazing. He's amazing. Uh, unbelievable. Yeah. Genetics is a real thing. And, and yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately. Mm-hmm. For nutrition for um, a fit individual, right? So, the, mm-hmm. I guess one question is how much muscle can someone put on in a year? And is it different for male? Yeah. Yeah. If we were to kind of boil it down to heuristics, it's about one to two pounds per month. Which is a lot. Depending on whether you're kind of a, more of a newbie mm-hmm. versus more of an intermediate. So if you want to gain, if, if you're Is that for men and women? See, that's I'm a, pushing that's you. A, yeah, yeah, that's women kind of I, the, yeah. I hate to, I hate to say this and, and women hate to hear this, but, um, an intermediate male trainee mm-hmm. can, can gun for a pound of muscle a month. Uh, an, intermediate Does it depend on age as well or not necessarily not necessarily okay yeah i mean there is some some uh drop off that mm-hmm. happens as you get like towards 70 80 90 ish it'll but, always be a decade older than you are yeah pretty much yeah no matter where you are you just <laughs> yeah, just, you just, just push it off yep, a decade yep. but yeah women gain muscle uh, at most i mean they they usually gain about 30 percent at, at least 30 percent. i want to say 50 percent at the rate that men do mm. So is that it, hormonal you think, or is it estrogen yeah. or is it fiber type capacity to lift heavy? I'm not saying that women can't lift heavy, but just pound per pound per pound. Depending. Their, their net rate is mm-hmm. lower because they tend to have a, a lower net amount of muscle mm-hmm. mass and body mass, yeah. but actually the rates proportionally are the same. They're the same, but just the, the amount is like women are about 30 to 50% less. Mm. So their rates are the same, but, but, um, proportionally the same, but net is going to be lower. So just to be on the safe side, an intermediate male can gain a pound of muscle a month if Mm. he does everything right. Intermediate female, half of that if she does everything right. So if you project that over the course of a year, Mm. you know, you're looking at 12 pounds versus six six pounds, pounds. but that's still, I mean, you do everything, everything right. In two years, you have 24 more pounds of meat. Is there Hell is there a Hell cap? Yeah. Is there a cap? Yeah. Is that, you know, there's the, the discussion of the fat free mm-hmm. mass index. Yeah. Is that where that plays in? And I know that that's, mm. I'd love for you to explain a little bit mm-hmm. about what this is. And the reason is, is I'm very curious about what is someone's muscle potential. We talk yeah. a lot about body fat yes. and that's really the primary target. And arguably because it does have health endpoints that are a problem, mm-hmm. you know, depending on how much weight you have. But what about that? skeletal muscle mass and fat-free mass index? Yeah. One thing that we can pretty much count on as far as muscular potential goes, whatever your, whatever the average adult muscle mass is, average healthy adult, the potential for... I'll be double that. <laughs> double, right? <laughs> no, not quite. That would be, be pretty cool. But it's right around 25-ish percent beyond that if you do everything right in terms of nutrition and training. Mm. So that would be, yeah, muscle mass wise, mm. about 25% above and beyond that. Mm. 
above and beyond the average. The average for an untrained individual. Which is interesting. Because an untrained individual would essentially be a sedentary, unhealthy model. So, again, understanding that 25% 25%, more of that. Yeah. And it, then, it's, it's a lot when, yeah. when you math it out, it, it, it's a lot. So if you take, um, like for example, you take the average adult male had 20 pounds of muscle on him. Mm. It's like, Ooh, man, that's intense. <laughs> yeah. 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 Do you think that there is ever a way, you know, there's this idea that some people are hard gainers. Some people, there are different body types yes. that plays a role into their muscular potential. Absolutely does. Absolutely does. Because people regulate um, perturbations in energy balance differently. Mm. Uh, some people uh, have a Explain much... Explain what that means. This is a really sure, sure, sure. Yes, yes. For people. Some people have a stronger homeostatic drive, meaning that their body is much more defensive um, about preserving the status quo. Mm-hmm. Because um, at a very kind of basic level, the body doesn't know that we're trying to lose 10 pounds or we're trying to gain 10 pounds. Anytime the body sees an imbalance in, in energy, it senses a, a, a basic threat to survival. Crazy. And so all of these survival defenses switch on. And so with some individuals who are trying to gain muscle and you're trying to feed them an extra 500 calories a day, what can happen with a lot of guys or women who are hard gainer types mm-hmm. is they'll have a natural tendency to ramp up non-exercise activity yes. Yes. or, you know, what we call neat or non-exercise non-exercise. Which activity would be like they would be fidgeting or getting up and moving around. That's right. That's right. Just subconscious mm-hmm. movement, um, in subconscious, just muscular work, even while, even through the sleeping cycle. So, Oh, that's um, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I had no idea. Yep. Tossing and turning, mm-hmm. you know, just muscle contraction and stuff. So yeah, there are certain individuals who are apparent hard gainers, but what happens is their non-exercise activity thermogenesis ramps up mm. and swallows up that, uh, that caloric surplus that you're trying to impose, like that mm. extra few hundred calories that you're trying to impose on them. It gets swallowed up by their ramped up non-exercise activity, so, which is like, you said the fidgeting, yeah. the non-exercise movement. What do people do? How, how would one overcome that? Eat more. <laughs> Just, Just get, get in touch with the two-handed diet, man. Oh, man. Yeah. Yep. That's that's intense. Yep. Um, for Do you work with a lot of... I, I get a lot of questions about menopause and perimenopause. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. by the way, your wife, who is just turned 50... Yeah looks amazing thank you arguably so she must be your longest uh client oh uh, yeah yeah she calls herself yeah yeah she tries to give me more credit than i deserve so i'll take it that's fine fair enough fair enough do you find that women around menopause gain weight more um and if so why and you know it doesn't seem like it's that that has to happen mm-hmm. I- mm-hmm. i'm sure people ask you this all the time yeah yeah for sure for sure there are environmental forces at work that affect behavior. And so in middle age, there is the unique set of stressors that um, prior, like younger adults do not experience. Mm. So there are work-related stressors um, that younger adults do not necessarily experience. There are health-related stressors coming from below and above. So the people who have the toughest time um, changing their body composition Mm -hmm. are middle-aged parents. Mm because they're dealing with environmental pressures from below, from the kids, 
and they're dealing with um, other stressors coming from above with like aging and ailing parents. Mm -hmm. And um, it's very tough for people to navigate just a multitude of stressors stacked on one on top of the other, you know, the stereo typical wine mom. <laughs> You're absolutely right. So, so what, um, I want to point out is that I didn't hear you say that you go through menopause and something metabolically happens yeah. where you are right. destined. So you navigated that beautifully. <laughs> and basically what you're saying, and a lot of the data would support that, um, you know, in randomized control trials, that if diet lifestyle behaviors are accounted for, mm -hmm. um, again, Oftentimes women do lose muscle mass during that time, whether it's a change in hormones and, and they're not keeping up with dietary protein or training, but you know, the idea that someone goes through menopause and has to put on weight, there is that redistribution, mm -hmm. but yes. you have not seen or read, which you are very well read that it, there is some metabolic derangement specifically. Yeah. At the, least this that, is, yeah. that we understand yet. Yeah. The, the gray area is the redistribution, uh, the, the hormonally mediated redistribution of uh, body fat accumulation. Mm -hmm. And so there, in, in some research, would show a tendency towards more central adiposity. Yeah. Or and I've seen that the, anecdote. I've seen that anecdotally. Yeah. I mean, I've seen that in my practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, there, there is that aspect, and that is probably hormonally mediated. Mm -hmm. But... Um, that doesn't mean that this isn't something that can be minimized or even avoided to a degree, depending on lifestyle, yes. depending on training, um, depending on diet. And um, a lot of this re redistribution stuff, it can come in the form of visceral fat. It's not necessarily um, stuff that you're doomed to experience. And visceral fat is the fat around the organs. fat around the organs, Not yes. subcutaneous, which is the fat that you see. Yes, that's right. That's right. And so a lot of these changes in, in the middle-aged um, female body, in the middle-aged female physique and body composition mm. are due to lifestyle factors, are due to modifiable factors. Lot, so, like you said, a lot of people, for whatever reason, there's an increase in alcohol intake. Mm -hmm. And how does that affect in terms of weight loss? How have you seen it or what have you experienced in terms of the data? How does that affect fat loss, weight loss? Is it, it purely it, calories or... It's calories, um, and it also, individuals are, are affected differently by alcohol. Some, mm -hmm. For some people, it spikes appetite. Well, for most people, it actually it gives people the munchies. And um, in certain social situations where there's alcohol involved, and that will lower inhibitions, and then you have a much less clear judgment of what you want to plow through mm. after you have the drinks in terms of the 2 a.m. hot wings. <laughs> Or, or not. Right, right. This makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so there's a definite disinhibition hmm. phenomenon that goes on there that translates to how much you get in terms of food servings and what you reach for in terms of food servings. So alcohol definitely affects that. So that's it's uh, somewhat multifactorial. Mm -hmm. What about the training influence on all this? Do do you do training programs for people or do you guide them? What is... I, I usually outsource them out to my same, colleagues, but... but same. Same I have done it, yes. Do you, when someone asks you for a baseline recommendation, do mm -hmm. you give it to them? Do you say, okay, you should be, mm -hmm. uh, our goal is fat loss. I want you to be doing resistance training four or five days a week. What do yeah. you, yeah. do you give them some recommendations? It, um, it depends on where the person is at in, in their training journey. 
So um, rank beginners, you have to just kind of start them where you meet them where they're at, mm -hmm. whatever they can do. Um, there's various programs that can be like a two days a week full body, three days a week full body. Uh, those are kind of the uh, archetypical beginner type yep. stuff. And then the more intermediate stuff, you start going into upper and lower split, taking four days a week. Uh, and then as you get a bit more advanced, then you can go push both legs, take yeah, them yeah. twice through the week. Um, or you can stick with the upper lower, um, taking four days a week and then add a day of specialization or two. So of lots of hypertrophy resistance. Do you have them? Mm -hmm. Do you always recommend if someone is, and I, I say this hesitantly to you, weight loss resistant that they do high intensity type uh, interval like, training? Like interval yeah. Training. Do you have them add that in? If, if they prefer that kind of thing mm -hmm. and they're very time crunched and they are orthopedically ready for that and cardiac wise ready for that and yeah. they prefer it. Cool. Great. Fine. But um, for most people, it's good enough to get them to just walk more. Hmm. So it's not <laughs> as difficult, perhaps people are overcomplicating um, the execution aspect of what they need to be doing. Yeah, that's right. That's hmm. right. And with resistance training, you have to assess the individual and see what it is that they actually like. Some people hate the idea of going to the gym and pushing and pulling up I still think they should do that. I mean, stuff. if you guys hate it, you should do it. I mean, you know, yeah. I, I love it, but yep. um, some people hate it. So just do calisthenics at the park. Then. You know, go climb a rock somewhere or go, go find some place. Really, <laughs> some, really move. Yeah. Right. Something that, that you like that involves um, some external loading, mm -hmm. whether even if it's your own, your own body weight, which can be significant. Yep. Yeah. What about fat? Yes, let's talk about I, I fat. I want to talk about let's, fat. Let's go for it. Um, how much fat? So basically what you're saying is as long as it, it fits within your caloric goal, whatever you have de decided, mm -hmm. whether you're in a deficit or a surplus, do you care what kind of fat they get? There's lots of controversy, yeah. Controversy, especially seed oils went crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, oh, man, yes, yes. Um, I was just on uh, Max Lugavere's podcast. We, I love Max. He's a good Max friend. is awesome. Yeah. Shout out to Max. Yeah. Hey, Max. We Max, love you. We love you, Max. Uh, and, and a lot of the comments, they're like, you know, Max, you, you need to you need to get uh, Gabrielle in here to clear this <laughs> clear this carbon fat thing up. And so so hopefully, you know, you're not going to choke me out if I, if I like say something wrong. Here. No, we're our friends. We're friends. <laughs> what people have to understand is that I think um, we're all in this together. Yeah, you know, so. yeah, for sure. For and sure. we can always disagree. Mm -hmm. that's, that's right. That's what they do. That's right. And a lot of the things that people argue about online, the, the most passionately, are over just sort of the icing on the cake. I, agree. I mean, we agree on the cake and we're arguing over the I'm icing. so ridiculous. Sometimes it's we're even arguing over the sprinkles, right? So, um, so yeah, yeah, let's talk about fat. Um, there is a seed oil situation that went in bananas. And I think this is where people kind of, kind of get it wrong. They, mm. they read a blog or they see a video where somebody says seed oil is bad. Seed oils are really bad. Um, I got a comment, somebody, Somebody challenged me on the seed oil thing. They're like, Alan, you, you, you know, er, I hate you because you, you, you think that seed oils are okay to eat it, but, or you think that seed oils pretty, aren't harmful. Do you have pretty thick skin uh, after all this? I mean, people are, they are oh, not. Man, so thick. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so I just, I took the bait and I said. Oh, you did? I did. I took the bait and, and I decided to dedicate like two days of arguing if need be. Just a long time. <laughs> it? Well, you know, I'm competitive in certain ways. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, so I said, all right, so let, let's, let's, let's take a look at this issue. Your first mistake is making the claim that seed oils are this single monolithic species. Mm -hmm. When in fact, there are many different types of seed oils and um, they, diff they have different health effects. So which seed oil are you against? Mm -hmm. And what health outcome do you think it adversely affects? Mm -hmm. And at what dose? And what research? These are really important you, questions. Yep. It's like what what research would you cite to support this? And of course he didn't answer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Because you can go down the list of seed oils and look at and see how they have different health effects in different contexts. Mm -hmm. When people are railing against seed oils, what they're really legitly um, railing against mm -hmm. are. Anything hydrogenated, any vegetable, vegetable Which I think we oil all can that's, agree been, on. that's yeah. been hydrogenated. Right. Any oil, any vegetable oil that's just repeatedly used for frying just over mm -hmm. and over, where you're creating these oxidation products mm -hmm. that are going to negatively impact any number of health parameters. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, all of those things, yeah, what, would it be better if we use like coconut oil or olive oil, you know, for the high heat stuff, the repeated frying stuff? Well, yeah, I would, but there's a logistical challenge right. with, with greasy spoon restaurants. They're not going to fry their fries in, in, you know, olive oil right. or coconut oil or, or beef tallow or something, totally. right? So, so yeah, you, you can ruin your health if all you do is eat deep fried foods that have been fried in, in seed oils. <laughs> but it, it seems as if there's uh, this desire to pin all bad outcomes on these one things, whether it's right. red meat, whether it's seed oil. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge oversight. It is a huge oversight. So I, I, we both agree that you, you're not going to want to eat food that's been fried over and over in, in yeah. you know, let's say soybean oil, right? Also, it probably tastes terrible. Yes. Yeah, it probably tastes terrible. <laughs> yeah. However, drizzling um, sesame seed oil over over your food, mm -hmm. which is what Haitians have been doing right. since the beginning of time, mm -hmm. that actually has shown positive health effects. Mm -hmm. So what seed are we talking about? Yep. And what context are we talking about? It, it all matters. It does. Yeah. I would say that Don Lehman also uh, agrees with you. Uh, he said the exact same thing. Now, I want to ask you a question, which I think is my most exciting question. I'm really hyping <laughs> this up. All right. <laughs> the people that I have found that are really innovators in their field are always reading and searching and they're typically 10 years ahead. Oh boy. Okay. Not to put the pressure on 10 years. Feel ahead. The pressure. Of, yeah. Feel the pressure. It's okay. 10 years ahead of what is kind of coming out. And I'm just curious. So you put out this flexible dieting book, mm -hmm. which is phenomenal. And thank I'm you. Gonna, it is. It's thank amazing. You so much. And you put a lot of work into it and it's really well done. And it's, it's great to interface with whether they're a clinician or a lay public, you know, person. It's amazing. Thank you. My next question is what is on the forefront for you in terms of what have you been thinking about? Maybe you haven't talked about, hmm. I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. Um, for myself, I'm very curious about the gut microbiome and how is it possible that the body could generate its own amino acids. And I think that that in the next 10 years, we're going to find things out about essential amino acids. We never, we never could have managed. Mm. So I'm curious, is there anything that you have been interested in yeah. that maybe you haven't really publicly talked about or mm. things that uh, it piqued your interest? Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, yes. Yes. That I, it's not that exciting, but I'm noticing that there's a lot more people in my age group who are stronger, more vigorous, and even more mentally lucid hmm. than they were like 25 years back. So, um, yeah. And, and so I'm interested in how can we preserve that uh, through the life cycle, how can how can we make tomorrow's eighty year olds be like today's fifty year olds? I think that's incredible. So that that's kind of what what I'm very interested mm. in because I don't see any really good reason to start feeling old at fifty, sixty, seventy. I, I would agree with you. you do you know I'm a trained geriatrician? Did you know that? I did a fellowship at Washu. That's freaking amazing. I did a fellowship at Washu. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I'm not surprised because, <laughs> like, oh, I looked up overachiever in the dictionary, and then and there was a picture of you like this <laughs> right right there. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm not surprised. So, that's really interesting. And what have you seen or read? See, I knew it. I knew it. I'm telling you guys that the people that are at the top of their fields are always thinking about the next thing. I, I know it because it is there. There's striking similarities by individuals that have been in their profession and are on a road to mastery there. I'm telling you, there are striking similarities. That's well, what you I, have the spot. I, I got to tell you, um, a lot of this is just motivated just by watching the years and the decades go by. Mm -hmm. Um, I find myself saying a lot that I feel stronger, more vigorous, more functional now than I was 25 years ago mm. when I was 25. Mm. And so, and there's sort of this old school mentality that, oh, people start getting old at 40, you start declining at 40. And I personally didn't see that for myself, even when I crossed over being 50, so there's a mindset component and also a lifestyle mm -hmm. component that yes. we don't know how mm -hmm. to age, right? I mean, hey, look, and, and I want to figure you. out what that is mm -hmm. and I want to try to find out how we can just sort of push that, that, what do you think? Do you have push any... that curve out a little bit. More. <laughs> do you have any initial thoughts on what that looks like? Yeah. Um, I think that, uh, if you look at the way that sarcopenia happens, um, you can look at sort of three, three components of it. So there is a physical activity component or a disuse, a muscular disuse mm -hmm. component mm -hmm. where it, it's literally the use it or lose it phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Like if you just immobilize a limb, even just a Absolutely. single limb for two days of immobilization, you can see muscle loss. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, at muscular atrophy can happen at any age. It's not a function of, of a chronological age. Which is incredible for people to understand that sarcopenia, a disease of muscle, you know, strength, mass, function, actually begins, can begin in your 30s. Mm -hmm. Way earlier than yes. we're getting credit for. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. and, and then there's the kind of the related phenomenon of dynapenia. So where, whereas sarcopenia would be more of the age related or the disuse related loss of muscle mass, dynapenia would be the age related loss of muscle strength. So they kind of go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. 
And there's a little bit of a debate amongst academics yes. about what's, what do we got to concentrate on more? Yep. We've been focusing on sarcopenia so much that we forgot about dynopenia. Mm -hmm. So, but it is a, an issue of disuse. So that's on, on the one side. And on the other side, there is the contribution of suboptimal protein intake on the development of uh, sarcopenia and dynopenia. So um, there's disuse, mm -hmm. there's suboptimal protein intake, and then the third major contributor, ironically, is um, just general overconsumption combined with undertraining that will get people obese. So um, the accumulation of body fat at higher and unhealthy levels can contribute to the phenomenon of sarcopenia since obesity can inhibit muscle protein synthesis and sort of have this kind of bi-directional vicious cycle going. So sarcopenic obesity. Sarcopenic obesity. Yeah. yeah so it appears that the, the three-pronged approach to mitigating sarcopenia and dynopenia and all of the uh, negative health consequences related to that would kind of at a, at a very simplistic level be let's get training right let's get protein right mm -hmm. and let's get body composition right. let's control excess accumulation of body fat so i think that there's a lot to kind of look at within those those three um avenues i completely completely agree with you good good yeah I, I'm, I'm in good hands good <laughs> <laughs> um Alan, thank you so much for spending the time with me and sharing your knowledge. We are going to link your book, your research review, your Instagram, your website, your Twitter. Am I missing anything? Your uh. social security number, <laughs> no. your retinal scan. No, just kidding. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank yeah. you so much. The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice. And no patient-doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from the podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.